0: Let's come and let's pray together as we approach God's Word. Father, we thank you for the image that you give us in your Word, that when we come and we feast on your Word, we will be like a tree that's growing strong. Thank you that when we come to your Word, we learn more about you, who you are and what you've done for us. And thank you that you show us how we should live. So come and help us. Help us to understand today what it means to live for you. Help us to put aside everything that is distracting us and help us to focus. To focus on you and your words and your teaching. We commit ourselves and we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have been with us over the past number of months you will know that our studies have been in the Ten Commandments. We've been looking together at what they mean today. Not just this list of rules and regulations as they're so easily seen as but what they mean. I think we've all been surprised at the depth they go to in teaching us today, the relevance of today as to how we should live, as to how we should grow. It's not about do and don't but it's about engaging with God and the life that he has for us. So I guess now would be as good as time as Annie to give you a little test to see how well you remember the past 12 weeks or so. So if I was to ask you what was the first commandment in your heads right now what would be flashing through your minds the words that there would be? If in your mind it is you shall have no other gods before me well done the first commandment the second commandment something like it So the first two commandments teach us and show us about how we are to interact with God, how we are to worship him, how he is to be the only one. Nothing else can be the center of our worship, God only. And whenever Christoph was introducing this particular series on the Ten Commandments to us, he framed it in that if we believe that God is good and we affirm that, That if we believe God is good, well, then His way of life for us will be good also. In other words, if we trust God and believe that He is the best for us, well, then the Ten Commandments, the guide to life that He has given us, will also be the good thing that He has for us. And as we were preaching it and chatting about it, we came to realize that we wanted to to look a wee bit further into one particular thing. And it's the first two commandments this idea of idols. The idols that we worship in life today. So for the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at idols. What do they look like today? What does it mean for us? There's going to be four weeks looking at this topic. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about the idol of money. What money means to us, what money does to us, and what we can do about it. Most of our reading for this has come from Tim Keller's book, about two years old, three years old now, Counterfeit Gods. And so if you've read it recently, as I know many have, you'll you'll notice some things that are similar. Uh, Keller puts it well, but we've added to it and used it to help us here in our own context think about it. So let's start this morning by thinking about idols, and then we'll move into thinking about money as an idol seems to me that it's very easy for us to recognize idols because we think that idols are the things that are big standing there that people, masses, bow down to. The little footage that we get out of North Korea shows us school trips to the statues of the chairman and they all bow down in reverence to this golden statue of the founder of North Korea, the communist ruler. We recognize it in ancient Egypt, the stone carvings that there were that the ancient Egyptians would bow down to as their gods. And even in the Bible, for the children of Israel, God's community, they built themselves an idol and they worshipped it rather than God. The King James Version puts it no graven image. And that's what God requires of us nothing. Nothing in front of us that would take us away from worshipping him. And as we thought, many times when we looked at the commandments, we could sit back confidently and say, well, I don't bow down to anything that is made out of stone or wood. I don't bow down to an idol and worship something physical there in front of me rather than God. But as with everything in the commandments, we realized that there was much more depth to it. There was much more meaning for us than just what it looked like on the surface. In Acts 17, we have the account of Paul in Athens. And verse 16 says that while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There would have been Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Ares, the god of war. Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. And Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. Wealth, work, beauty, security. Idols that Paul faced in Athens. And whenever we hear it in, in those words that are familiar to us, I think we recognize them in our society today, that we are not that far removed from the ancient Athens We live in a society still dominated by idols, each with its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. And I think nothing more so than the recent downturn in the economy has proved this to us. The idols that we have set up for ourselves, we and the world. How in the the good times, whenever money was flowing in, whenever life was happy and content, The world structured its life around these possessions and how quickly it was taken away. The thing that had been making people so secure and safe was now the thing that was causing great sorrow and despair. In the 1830s, when Alexis de de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, He noted a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Americans believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for a happy life. But they realized that such a hope was illusory because, as de Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart this strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways but it always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought and there is a difference between sorrow and despair sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation sorrow comes from losing one thing but knowing that we have others to support us So, if if we experience a career reversal, we can find comfort in our families to get us through it. Despair is inconsolable. Because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning, your hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. And what it does, it breaks your spirit. So, what is the cause of this strange melancholy that permeates our society even during the boom time of frenetic activity and which turns to outright despair when prosperity diminishes? De Tocqueville says it comes from taking one incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. That is the definition of idolatry. An idol is something quite easily, uh, and it is, uh, it's made quite easily, and it is something that gives security and self-worth rather than God. An idol is something that attracts us more than God attracts us. An idol comes in front of us and means we cannot get to God because we are bowing down to it rather than bowing down and worshipping God. And Ezekiel 14, verse 3, God says about the elders of Israel that these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And it's in this verse that God is saying that the human heart is where our idols are. It's in our hearts where our focus begins and lives out in our lives. It's the human heart that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify these things as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Keller helps us think about this. A little bit more and giving us an example of that I'm sure we'll all be familiar with. Whether we have read the books or seen the movies, but the Lord of the Rings, the central plot in it is all around the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power. And that it has to be taken back and destroyed. And even along the way of this journey, there are many people who want to do good with its power and use it for for good things. So some of the characters in the book want to liberate slaves, or prevent their people's lands from being destroyed, or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. And they're all good objectives, but one by one, each comes under the influence of that ring, and it makes them achieve their goal in whatever, with whatever it takes, good or wrong. The power of that ring becomes the idol For these individuals who want to do good but are so blinded by the effect that the ring has on them, idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil in Tolkien's novel and also in the world today. And we need to recognize that the Bible presents us with three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to the idols of their hearts. So the first one is they love idols. Second one, they trust idols. And the third one, they obey idols. Idols are loved and delighted in. They bring a sense of satisfaction. Idols are trusted because they bring a sense of peace and security. Idols are obeyed because they become a master and a lord. As we make our way through looking at the different idols in the world today, this will be part of the framework that there will be as we think of each idol and it will appear again and again. So let's turn to the idol we're thinking of this morning and the idol of money. I probably shouldn't have been watching these programs but in the 1970s, just after television came to the masses, there were two major US dramas in the 1980s and they had gripped not only the American audiences but also audiences here in the UK and Ireland. Dallas and Dynasty. Do you remember them? The Ewings of Dallas, the oil barons with J.R. and Sue Ellen and Miss Ellie. And then you would go over to Colorado, and you would discover the Carringtons of Dynasty or Dynasty, and you would have Blake and Crystal and Alexis and their families, all fighting and all living. But we forget the fighting. Oh, very easily we forget the storylines of fighting and what happened. We make ask once again who shot Jr., but we forget the storylines, and what we remember are the houses. South Fork Ranch, the cars, the swimming pools, the lifestyles that they lived, and it always seemed that every problem they had, it could be overcome by just throwing a little bit more money at it. So if you needed to keep someone quiet, put a little money in their direction, and that'll happen. If you want to get your own way, well, buy the piece of land or or buy that particular item and so our society in the 80s as it grew with the the yuppie uh, phase that was going on at that time in the 1980s and the early 90s our society became consumer driven money actually had no worth because we were spreading it around left right and center because it's how we were taught to do it not by parents not by folks in our homes but by television so money has become the centre of something we do throwing it around as if it's, it's just on paper of course it is but as if it really truly is A4 scrap paper having been down in Greystones for the last week we had the opportunity to go around Greystones and indeed as you're going around Dublin on the way down, the way up again. It's noticeable how the Celtic Tiger really has died. The once beautiful uh, sand-lined harbour and beach at the front of Greystones is gone because ten years ago it was a great idea to build a harbour that would attract people from Dublin to come with their holiday homes for the weekend and things like that. People would invest, tourists would come It took us half an hour to walk anywhere to actually see a decent stretch of sand-lined beach. Because the money has stopped, the investors pulled out and the tourists never came to see this harbour built in greystones. There are now white wooden hoardings up around the site that once was so beautiful and now all you can see is this white fence. And it's the same on the M50 as you skirt around Dublin and avoid the city centre. Apartment blocks, office blocks, enterprise parks, half-built shopping malls. Once, these were the social places of the elite of Dublin, and not just the elite, but everyone of Dublin, where the money would go and be spent, and designer labels purchased, coffee would be had, and life was good. And planning ahead, not seeing a downturn, money was thrown into these, what are now, half-baked projects. Because money came... And money went. Even closer to home, as we think of what our own denomination has faced in the loss of so many savings through the Presbyterian Mutual Society. The hurt, the heartbreak and the sorrow that that has been for many, many brothers and sisters in Christ. Money never was an idol. Money will never be an idol. The world has always seen it as its source of power and security and happiness. And yes, it can. It can bring that. I was the perfect example of it yesterday as Pamela and I stopped in uh, Junction, no, not Junction, One, the other one, the outlet in Bridge. And I've been looking for a pair of jeans for months and you do get this moment of, I've bought something, it's great, but it quickly disappears. And I think we all recognise it. We like what's fresh. We like what's new. But it never lasts. And what we have been pulled into by the consumer marketeers, we've been pulled into this cycle that once your new phone becomes old, well, just get another one. Or once that new item becomes old, it's easy to get another one. And we'll help you finance it. Money has always been as the source of happiness But in 2009, a survey in the United Kingdom, 48% of the British public said they were worried about money. Nearly half of this sample said they were worried about money. Money doesn't bring us happiness. Money can never bring us happiness. Rather, it brings us worry. And in our Bible passage this morning, Jesus helps us look, about, look at this a little bit more. Long before there was ever a Great Depression, long before there were ever the recessions of the 90s and the noughties, Jesus was talking to us about money. He could see that value and worth did not lie in inanimate objects, but real treasure would be found in heaven. And he told his followers and his listeners, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth. Because this treasure, the moth and rust can destroy it. Thieves can break in and steal it. And he says, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus even in his day, turns his world upside down with his radical teaching. At different points throughout the gospel stories, we recognize how the Pharisees are seen as the rich, always looking more money. How the temple, there were taxes, everything in the temple was surrounded by money and the money changers at the entrance to the temple. And Jesus says, this isn't the way of life that you're called to. Because... I want you to have treasure that is so precious that no one can get at it because it is kept with God. This is the treasure that Jesus presents to us. He presents to us a relationship with God as the most valuable thing we can ever have, where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thief cannot break in and steal, because it is God's to give and it is God's to keep for us. And Jesus clearly tells us, That whatever our treasure will be, it will capture our heart. And where our hearts will be, well, that's where the treasure will be also. So, our hearts are the central issue that Jesus wants to address. What is the idol of money that is within our hearts? Are our hearts centered on the treasure that is in heaven or the treasure that's on the world? Are we rushing to amass wealth in a bank account, spending money to make ourselves acceptable to the world? Or are we rushing to Jesus to receive real treasure from him? Jesus continues and he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We cannot have two gods. That's not how we're designed. We're designed to have one God and one God only. God the Father. If we're allowing money to influence everything we do, if we're allowing money to be our security, if we're allowing money to be our status, if we are allowing money to be our foundation, well then God is not our God. The money is our God. I have said many times up here in sermons that I'm a lover of gadgets. And I've had to be challenged over the past 18 months about purchasing such things and using such things and the necessity of such things. I've also shared with you how I've lived in Ivory Coast and living there, being evacuated twice, losing absolutely everything except what you could carry in a bag. And as I look back, I, I think... At the time, I thought, this is awful, woe is me, I've lost absolutely everything. But when I look back now and see that, yes, I lost books, CDs, clothing, everything, I recognize that whenever I had lost everything that the world wanted me to have, I was found in one thing, and that was God alone. Who is at our center? Who is the one that is ruling us? Is it a counterfeit or false God of money that we think will bring us status and happiness? Or is God at the center the only one who can bring true happiness and true hope and true security? Because money does three things and we can do three things with money. Firstly, we can save it We can open up our bank accounts and put our money there. And if you were brought up in a household like mine, that's what you were taught to do. Save your money, put it away. You're going to need it in the future. And saving money is good and we all recognize that. But it is a subtle idol. For whenever we store up money thinking that we can depend on the money that is in the bank for our security in the future, we're pushing God to the side and saying, we're Relying on what we have amassed and what is of our hands rather than what God wants us to have. Because he has promised that he will provide our every need. This is the idol of trust. We are trusting in money. The second thing we do is spend it. We spend it on ourselves. We spend it on our families. The main reason so that we can enjoy it and we can fit in. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Keeping Up with the Joneses. This American family that move into neighborhoods, but they're not really a family, they're paid employees of the corporations to highlight the new gadgets and sell everything, saying that this is a life of happiness. And the movie actually ends in a life of tragedy because the movie is very good in saying that possessions, wealth, and money is not what brings the true happiness. We purchase things, clothes, makeup consumer goods, to display to the world that we are just like them because we will fit in with everything around us. Jesus calls us to be radical just like him, to not conform to the ways of this world but to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Whenever we spend money, we're loving it. Because we're loving what money can give us. And the third thing that we can do is simply give it away. We can give to charities. We can give to those who are not as well off as we are. We can give it to the church. And yes, this is good that we can give part of our earnings and part of our savings and money to things and people who need it. But the subtle idol that arises is when we take our status from our giving. Oh, look at me how much I give. Isn't it great that I was able to help such and such a charity or such and such a person? Because the status becomes our subtle idol rather than the genuineness that God calls us to to give freely and joyfully because of what he has given to us. Giving is not about how we look and about making ourselves feel good or taking the higher moral and ethical ground. Giving is about displaying God's love to the world around us. So the third thing we can do is give money away. That's when we obey our idol. God says, love, trust, and obey me. To love, trust, and obey him. So that he can be the source of our security, our happiness, and he can truly be our Lord. Money and everything it brings can be our master. And it's so subtle in how it does it. And if we're not careful, we will allow it to come into our lives. We will allow it to take over our hearts little bit by little bit rather than allowing Jesus his rightful place as our Saviour and Lord. Folks, I challenge you as I challenge myself this morning. Be on your guard. Do not allow money and its subtleties to sneak into our lives. If we have the opportunity to amass wealth, share it freely and lovingly as God has given. If we are struggling in the world that needs so much money to survive, we can ask freely for it. Because at the end of the day, it's not really ours. It is really God's. Money is just there to help us live. It's not there to be the end all of everything we do. It's not there to be made an idol. Let God be your security. Because God has always wanted to do that. Let God be the source of your love and your hope. Let him be the one who you trust and who you obey. Because he is the one who has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the one who has promised he will be with us to the very end. Let's pray.